Welcome to Coach House Talks. So last time we were together, Paul was in the midst of a crazy storm at sea, called in Greek a Euroclidon, which means a typhonic wind or a typhoon, and that was not uncommon in winter. It didn't always come, but when it came, it stirred things up. Paul was on this ship, 276 people are on board. He's overseen by a guy named Julius, a Roman centurion. There's the maritime captain aboard this vessel too, but he and all of his crew are unable to control this ship because of the storm. God was in control of that storm. Now, if you remember, when they were aboard this ship, they couldn't see the stars for weeks. They couldn't read the skies. And navigation was not done by compass, radar, sonar, computer, phone, GPS. It was done by looking at the stars. So they were unable to find where they were and where they were going. They had no point of reference at all. And while they were taking this journey and that wind took them from one place to the other, their biggest fear was that they would be beached on the sands, the shoals off North Africa. They came close but they were afraid that the wind was going to take them right there to North Africa. And that was an area that was famous for these sandy shoals where ships would often get stuck. But as God would have it, he has a plan for another place. And that's the place that they end up. So in the storm, they start throwing things overboard. They throw the tackle and cargo overboard. And eventually, finally, the boat shipwrecked. We saw last week how difficult it was, verse after verse after verse, sailing into the wind, doing it with difficulty, getting pushed back along the way. Still Paul's in the will of God, and he knows it. He believes it. And it's confirmed even during this storm. But it's not what he anticipated. How many times have you made plans and God changes your plans? So you even get to a point where, you know, should I even make plans? Well, you should, but you should always say, as James counsels us, if the Lord wills. It's a great caveat. Well, to be honest, I'll finish this preach if the Lord wills. James said that's how we ought to live our lives. And so I have friends who will always say that. You can count on it if the Lord wills. In Isaiah 55, God through the prophet in verse 8 and 9 of that chapter said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Lord had different plans for Paul in this storm. Also, Paul has great calm in the midst of this storm. And he has great calm when he gets to land, as we're going to see. Some amazing things are about to happen to Paul and the other 275. And Paul is calm throughout all of it. This, probably because not only did he know he was in God's will, but he knew he would be safe. And all those aboard the ship would be safe. Because the Lord gave him her vision one night. Verse 23 of chapter 27. For last night an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. Well, if you're going to be brought before Caesar, you're going to go to Rome, because that's where Caesar lives. So now it's confirmed in the vision that he's going to appear before Caesar. So it's difficult, but he knows the end game. He can see the horizon. 
he knows this road that he is on will end in Rome. Now we've heard a lot about Corrie ten Boom over the last few weeks in church. And Corrie had a perspective on life and God's will and suffering so clear that it rivals any other works on suffering and the will of God. And she had a lot of great sayings. And one of her sayings was this, if God sends you on stony paths, he provides strong shoes. And she went on a stony path, finding herself in a Nazi concentration camp and being persecuted and being hurt. Even though you're a believer in God and you're wondering, God, why would you let this happen to me? Corrie saw how God provided strong shoes. When God sends you on rocky paths, he also sends strong shoes. Also, though Paul did not go to Rome the way he thought, he was going to go to Rome with strong shoes. If we take a look back at verse 21, there was a change in this storm. Paul gave counsel and said, don't go. And the centurion listened to Paul because he liked Paul. When the captain of the ship said, don't listen to Paul, he's a prisoner. What does he know? I'm a captain. Let's go. Well, they went and they got into trouble. And when they got into trouble, Paul in verse 21 said, man, you should have been listening to me and have not sailed from Crete. And then he encouraged them. After saying you should listen to me, he gave them encouragement and gave them a promise that the Lord sent an angel to appear to me. You're going to be safe. We're going to make it. Everybody on board, if you stay on this ship, is going to be fine. But what we see is that Paul goes from captive on the ship to captain of the ship. He sort of takes charge. And now everyone wants to listen to Paul. So much so that when Paul says, well, you guys haven't eaten for two weeks, eat breakfast. They all ate. Some of the men, though, one night thought they'd take the little boat and escape. And Paul said, no, don't. Unless you stay in this boat, you're going to die. God will get you to land, but you have to stay in the boat. Stay on the ship. I didn't have time last week to say that that's actually really good counsel for us. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. One of our hardest things to do in life is to wait on the Lord. You know it's true. We hate to wait for the Lord or to wait on the Lord. But let me encourage you to do that. When things don't go our way, we want to jump ship. Church isn't going our way. I'm going to jump ship. The job isn't going our way. I'm going to jump ship. Stay put for a while. If you don't have a clear green light from the Lord, then see it as a red light or at least a cautionary yellow light. Slow down. Slow your horses. Stop. Wait. And then if it turns green and the Lord shows you this is where I want you to go, then go. I have learned that lesson painfully on so many different occasions. Don't jump ship. Stay aboard. So now to verse 39 of chapter 27. And we're reading from the NLT. When morning dawned, they didn't recognise the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea. Then they lowered the rudders, raised the foresail and headed toward shore. But they hit a shoal and ran the ship aground too soon. 
the bow of the ship stuck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape, but the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship, so everyone escaped safely to shore. Now, they go to a land where they have no idea its identity. They don't know which land it is. Paul said, we're going to run aground on a certain island. Chapter 28, verse 1. It's the island of Malta. Malta is a series of little islands between Sicily and North Africa, and the biggest of which is considered the island of Malta. It's really quite a small island. It's only 17 miles long by 10 miles wide. Now, they would have recognised had they gone to the main port of that island, Valletta, but they didn't land there. The next three months will be spent on this island of Malta and you're about to see that God has a plan for this island. Malta is one of those places when you have a storm and you have rain and it's a torrential downpour, those raindrops will feel like bullets. So it's cold. They're in the sea, they're in the rain, full exposures to the elements and they go now to the shore. In Psalm 107, the psalmist says, for he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and they go down to the depths. If you have ever been in a storm on the sea, you know this reality. It's up high and down low. And you think with each one it's going to break the boat and capsize and break you. At the very least, what God is doing is getting the attention of the 276 passengers to at least now listen to Paul and respect him. Because he was right the first time. And he's right the second time. And now they're going to at least listen to this crazy preacher, this man of God. God has their attention. God is in this storm. Notice what it says in verse 40. They let go the anchors and left them in the sea. They just let the anchors go. The boat was being disintegrated and they came to the land. Now, if you go to the city or the island of Malta today, there's a couple of famous churches built in homage to the shipwreck of Paul. One is called Shipwreck Cathedral. It's in the main part of Valletta. And there's another smaller one in what's called St. Paul's Bay. What most people believe to be the area where the ship ran aground. Now, in the 1960s, an old sailor and an old diver, along with a team, were diving off the coast of Malta and they found from the Roman era four anchors. Now who knows which ship they're from, but it's kind of interesting. Somebody was snooping around Malta and asking about this biblical account, and this guy Ray said, oh, I was part of the team that found those four anchors, or at least found four anchors, and he described the place as a place where two seas meet, where there is a sandy beach, and at the precise depth of 90 feet. And then he showed them. They dove down to show him where they found the anchors. Now the anchors have been exhumed. They're currently in the National Maritime Museum in Malta. And there's no special sign on them. And they're just kind of in the corner. And the sign reads, Four Roman Anchors. Now we don't know if those are the four anchors, but it's interesting that people day after day in this museum walk past these four anchors completely oblivious to the tale that those four anchors might actually tell. 
These anchors and locations certainly fit the date archaeologically. They fit where they were found, and I think it's kind of cool. Now we're in chapter 28. When they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. The word Malta is a Phoenician term. The Phoenicians were the seagoing group from the area of Lebanon, and they conquered that area, and they settled Malta. And their word for escape is Malta. So the word Malta means escape or a refuge. So it's as if God's having a little joke and saying, well, you escaped to the island called Escape. All 276 passengers escaped to this little island of Malta, and the natives showed them unusual kindness. For they kindled the fire and made them all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. This is early winter. One thing I can tell you, from the little island called Laris, which is where we spend most of our holidays, and where Becca and I spent our honeymoon. Hospitality is one of the biggest things. And I really like this. You know, to be hospitable to one or two people, that's nice. But the Maltese, they were hospitable to 276 people, and a bunch of them were prisoners. And they're showing kindness. Not just kindness, but an unusual kindness. The Bible places a high value on a character trait all Christians should exhibit, and that is the trait of hospitality. We should be given to hospitality. It's required in church leadership to be hospitable, but it should be exemplary in all of our Christian lives. Hebrews 13 says that we are to show hospitality, to show love to one another, and to entertain strangers. Not sure this means doing a comedy show, but you never know. Because for some, by doing that, have actually entertained angels without knowing it. So they showed them unusual kindness. They started a fire. It's got to be a big fire for 276 people. They built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his head and said to each other, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. Now, I've got a simple question. What is Paul doing gathering sticks? He's an apostle. And not only that, he has a huge bonfire to warm 276 cold souls. Yet Paul gets up and he just starts gathering sticks. Now, there's an obvious reason for this. Fires need feeding. But why Paul? Paul made incredible promises because an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He's the guy that got them to land safely without getting killed. They kind of owe Paul their lives. Paul could have just barked out orders. Julius, the centurion, I saved your life. Why don't you go get wood? But he doesn't do that. And here's just an insight into Paul's character. Paul the Apostle, the great leader, is picking up sticks. It's what leaders do. No job is too small for a true leader of God. A leader doesn't say, well, you know, it's not really in my job description. I'm the anointed of the Lord. I don't pick up sticks or clean the gutters or crawl under the floor. For Paul, little things like picking up sticks were just as important to him 
to do as preaching salvation to Caesar in Rome. That's a leader. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He emptied himself. Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So any leader who says, I'm too important to pick up sticks, is really not all that important at all. I just love this about Paul. He's just so practical. He sees that something needs to be done and he just does it. He sees rubbish that needs to be picked up and he picks it up. Something needs to be straightened up, he straightens it up. Paul's a true leader. So he's putting these bundles of sticks on the fire. The only problem is one of the sticks is alive and it happens to be a viper. So this snake grabs a hold of Paul. And all of the Maltese people are now saying, Oh, we know what this means. This means this guy's a bad guy. Now this is about to give us some insight into their theology. And it's a very important insight for us to see. Because it's still an insight into many people's theology today. So let's read from verse 4. A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. Now, I've got a problem with my Bible. The word justice is not capitalised. And I think it should be. Because justice, when used here, is the Greek word Vicky. And Vicky was the Greek goddess of justice. Lady Justice, the daughter of Zeus. One that they worshipped on Malta. So though it says justice with a small j, as if to describe the attribute of justice, they were actually describing Lady Justice. At the Old Bailey we have a Lady Justice who sits on the top holding the scales, but many places across the world Lady Justice has one slight difference. She's blindfolded, so she can't be partial to one party or the other. That's Lady Justice. That's a throwback to paganism and this belief in Vicky. So when they say Justice, they mean capital J. But they say, justice does not allow him to live. But Paul shakes it off. Now here's what I want you to see. These are unbelievers. They are pagan. They have a pagan worldview. But they have an interesting belief in right and wrong. They're not Christian. They're not Jewish. But they believe in right and wrong. They have a sense of morality. Well, where did they get this sense of morality from? In Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This presupposes they know the truth, or they at least hold at one time to the truth. It was given to them. So even the pagans of Malta had that. They're in error because they think that the gods immediately punish and immediately reward, rather than the God, the only true God, Yahweh, will ultimately and eventually judge all mankind based on their faith in Jesus Christ or not. But at least they have that. And that was placed there by God. So Paul reaches in, a viper, a poisonous viper, that's a word that is used, a deadly poison viper, not a little snake. They're thinking he's going to die, they're kind of waiting for him to keel over. But in verse 5, he just shakes it off. You know, he just glances it off. He just throws it away. He's calm. However, they were expecting that he would still swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But why would they believe that? Well, because they knew these snakes. These were the locals. They knew their island and that's 
what had happened before. But after they looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So something interesting about their theology, it was very fickle. First of all, he's going to die. He's angered Lady Justice. Not now. He's a god himself. He didn't swell up. He didn't die. Now Paul, flicking off this serpent, is a fulfilment of prophecy. That's probably why he's so calm. He's fulfilling a prophecy made by Jesus Christ. We find this in chapter 10 of Luke. So Jesus sends out seven disciples and they returned and they're all kind of pumped up because of their success. And Jesus says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing by any means shall hurt you. Then in chapter 16, these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. So Paul has a viper grab his arm and he go, oh yeah, I remember what Jesus said and didn't think anything of it because he knew this promise. Now this promise does not mean that you can have a walk around less than two metres from someone kissing every passerby and saying, well, God will protect me from the coronavirus. That's just ludicrous. But some churches around the world still believe that to be true. Jesus was making a promise that as the gospel is being spread, there will also come with the spreading of the gospel protection. And Paul knew that. Paul knows, look, it'd be stupid for me to die here because I was just aboard a ship and God preserved me on that boat. Plus, he told me I'm going to make it to Caesar. And between you and me, I don't see Caesar walking toward me right now as the snake is having a good old chew. So I'm guessing I'm not going to die from this. So he shook it off. He knew the promise of the Lord. In verse 7, we find the chief official of the island, the Roman governor of Malta, whose name was Publius, received Paul and his massive gang, and he entertained them for three days. You know, you might want to be hospitable, and I do too. I have friends that come from out of town, and I'll often say, stay at our house. Of course, I check with Becca first. But to bring 276 people home for three days, can I just say, you've got to have a big house. It shows us the kind of estate and status that Publius must have had to be able to house 276. And he did. He entertained them courteously. And they're going to spend three months there. But for the first few days, this guy's taking care of them. And it happened that the father of this leader lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. This guy's got gastric fever. It's a disease. Lack of sanitation can breed dysentery too. So you've just got a picture of this guy for at least months suffering with these issues. And Paul comes in and he does two things. Prays for him and then lays hands on him. Why does he pray for him? He prays for him because Paul doesn't heal anybody. It's because God is the one who heals. He's addressing the source of all power. That's why he prayed. Now he laid hands on him, not because Paul's hands were special. We lay hands on people, not because our hands are special. The only things our hands tend to have are germs. And Paul had germs. Paul's hands weren't glowing. It wasn't like Paul said, watch this. 
The reason he laid hands after he prayed was to show them that this man, Paul, was the instrument through which God healed. And once this man is healed, do you think everybody's going to be listening to Paul and what he has to say? Absolutely. Here's a guy who shook off a snake and he's still alive. And he prays for people and they get healed. So when this was done, verse 9, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Not unlike Jesus back in Capernaum. So people swarm him. As a result, we were showered with honours. Now let me just stop there before we finish. It doesn't say that Paul preached the gospel after he healed them, though I'm certain he did. And I'm certain for one reason. I've read the rest of the Bible and I see what Paul does everywhere. So just like Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it happened. So with that came the preaching of the Gospel. Now many believe that a church was established then and there, and I don't doubt it. And some even believe that the pastor of that church was none other than Publius. We don't know if that's true, but when you get to heaven, check the Lamb's Book of Life and see if his name is in there. Verse 10. As a result, we were showered with honours, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. They loaded them into the boat for their travel. Hospitality ranks high in Malta. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship, which is what they had gotten shipwrecked on. This is another one, whose figurehead was the twin brothers. The twin brothers are Castor and Pollux, the twin sons of Zeus, it was believed that they were like the patron islands of the ancient world and sailors believed that these twin gods protected sailors. So they would often carry an emblem of them or a figurehead on the front of the ship so as to please those gods to ask for a protection, not unlike people who superstitiously place a statue of Mary or a saint on a dashboard and think this is going to protect their car. A friend of mine used to do that and I remember sitting there thinking, You've got Mary facing us. Shouldn't you turn her around so she can see where we're going? Maybe the problems we're getting, the shipwrecks, are because we're looking the wrong way. And so they leave the island, verse 11 and 12. So to the next day we came to Puteoli, which is the Bay of Naples. There we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. So they found believers, and they stay seven days. The brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming and they came to meet us at the Forum, on the Appian Way. Others joined us at the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he was encouraged and thanked God. Now this shows that Paul may have been, at this point, discouraged. I don't know why, he could have been sick. I mean, it's taken him a heck of a long time to get there. And when we came to Rome, let me just take a breath in, just feel that. Finally, I came to Rome. He came to Rome where he'd always longed to be, the imperial city of Rome. Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And so next week, Andy's going to finish the book and do justice to Paul in Rome in the last of our study of Acts. I know, we're finally there. But to finish today, why does Paul want to go there? I think it's an easy answer. Light always shines in the darkest places. It's always more prominent the darker it is. You know, there's an old saying, and I'll say it and you'll finish it. All roads lead to Rome.
That's an ancient saying from way back then. And Paul knew that if all roads were leading to Rome, then all roads led from Rome. So to get the gospel into Rome and to get Christianity established at the centre of the empire would mean it could then flow around the world. And the reason we got the gospel in the uttermost parts of the earth is because Paul knew God put it in his heart for him to go to Rome and get the gospel to Rome. And that's the theme of this book. Between you and me, I'm glad there's men like Peter and other apostles who failed that we can relate to. Because we look at Paul and he's just head and shoulders above so many. This incredible man who is unafraid through whom Jesus did miracles, but he wasn't too important to pick up sticks. He was the servant. He didn't see himself as being in a more important position or a more glamorous position. He was a slave of Jesus. And if slaves of Jesus need to help keep the fire warm, that's what we need to do. And if a slave of Jesus needs to talk to Caesar, that's what we need to do. We as God's people need to see every opportunity of being around unbelievers as an opportunity to shine Christ by some word, some act, some prayer, some deed. Using our lives to show the treasure of the gospel and the treasure of the gospel is in clay pots, foolish things, weak things, imperfect people. And we thank Jesus for it. So, Acts 27 and into the beginning of Acts 28, in the storm, we find it will change our values, it will change our focus, and it will change our comfort. But we have the three anchors, the anchor of service, the anchor of ownership, and the anchor of trust. Always be ready for the call of Jesus, to be walking and talking and acting in the will of God. Never being afraid to pick up sticks, even if there is a risk of a snake. God's got you. He loves you and wants you to step out. He wants you to take the journey and shine in the darkest places. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.